All right, greetings to all of our campuses. We are so glad you are here. Uh, today we are beginning a new teaching series entitled Love Songs. Our focus for this series is going to be the Song of Solomon, which is a very unique book in the Bible. I uh, just want to reiterate that today's message has adult content, so parents, this is your last chance uh, to take your younger kids to our children's ministry. I warned you. So, uh, so what makes Song of Solomon so unique is, is that it is a collection of love poetry, of love songs. And as we're going to see, some of these songs can be pretty passionate, pretty sexually explicit. In fact, for many centuries, sincere believers in God haven't known what to do with this book being in the Bible. I mean, what do you do with a book in the Bible that makes, you, you know, makes many people blush? Uh, what do you do with a book in the Bible that you hope your kids don't discover? Uh, what, what do you do with a book in the Bible that when you read it, you think it ought to be hidden in a ma- under, under a mattress somewhere? Uh, now, now, in order uh, to alleviate this problem, what some have done over the centuries is to view this book as an allegory, as a spiritual picture of love between God and his people. The problem is you have to do all sorts of interpretive gymnastics to get there. I mean, the best way to approach this book is to read it as it is naturally written. It is a collection of love songs written from the perspective of two lovers who are experiencing and expressing sexual desire for each other. Now, while that is the most natural interpretation, it raises a very important question. Why on earth is this book in the Bible? (laughs) Why did God put this in here? Here's the quick response. Because we need it. Because we need it. We need what this book communicates to us about the relationships in our lives that matter the most. For those of you who are married, you need this book. If you feel like your marriage is great, that's awesome. But it can always be better. And this book will show you how it can be better. If you're in a marriage that is stuck in in autopilot, a marriage where the spark of, of romance and desire has sort of gone out, you need this book. This book is God's gift to you to help breathe life into those embers. Well, what about singles? I mean, why do single people need this book? We live in a society where sex has become a normal part of many singles' lives. Statistics reveal that 88% of unmarried adults between the age of 19 and 29 are having sex. 88%. That statistic doesn't drop much for those who identify themselves as Christian. 80% of Christian young adults are having sex. 
So, so if, if so many young, young adults are having sex, why would a book like Song of Solomon be needed? I mean, what's the big deal about some sexual love songs in the Bible? We hear, all, you know, we hear songs all the time on the radio. Why should we care about these songs in the Bible? Here's why. It's because our sexual yearnings are about way more than getting in bed with someone. Our sexual yearnings are a reflection of a, of a longing in our soul for real connection. That's why God invented sex. And when, when we casually remove God from the sexual picture, sex becomes way less than it was ever intended to be. I'm not saying people don't have fun having sex outside of marriage. I mean, the equipment will work. But what I am saying is that we will be missing out on the ultimate joy and significance that sex is designed to bring to our lives. And you'll be opening yourself up to potential heartbreak and destructive patterns. You see, the only way to discover the true significance of your sexuality is by finding out God's heart on these desires. And that's why we all, married or single, all of us here, we all need the truths in the Song of Solomon. We need to see God's vision for our sexuality. Because it is a glorious vision. It is a joy-filled wonder. I mean, seriously. Now, unfortunately, the church has often gotten in the way of helping people see this vision. For too long, the church has often focused on one basic message about sex. Don't. Don't. Don't do this, and don't do that, and for sure don't do that, and don't even think about that. Now, while many of these restrictions are important, and they're often there to protect us from heartache, what inadvertently happens is that by focusing only on these restrictions, we end up, we, we as a church, we end the church, we, we, drown, we end up drowning out a very important and biblical message, a message that the Song of Solomon communicates beautifully, and that is that God loves sex. God loves sex. He does. He invented sex. That's why it's so powerful and so enjoyable. It's not man-made. It was completely and totally God's idea. God invented it. Which again means that if we want to experience the true significance of our sexuality, we need to lift our eyes beyond our society and beyond our own limited perspective, and we need to let God give us a renewed vision of our sexuality. That's what the Song of Solomon offers us, a renewed perspective, a more healthy vision of our sexuality. Now, I realize these issues we're going to be talking about are extremely complex, and they are deeply rooted in our life. So I'm not interested in offering simplistic answers. What I am interested in is us allowing God to speak to us about our sexuality, no matter if we're married or single or single again. Are we open to hearing God speak to us about this? Now, let me also mention that while today we're talking specifically about sexuality, not every message in this series will be as singularly focused. Next week, we're going to be looking at chapter one of Song of Solomon and talking about the art of attraction and how that impacts us when we're dating and how it can impact our marriage. Okay, so let's dive in. What I want to focus on in this first message is to provide, us, provide for us a foundation for approaching this book. I mean, at one level, the Song of Solomon is primarily about sexual desire. So how are we to view this desire? 
What does God say about it? How do we deal with our sexual desires in a life-giving way? Well, in order to answer these questions, we need to understand three things about our sexual desire. First, we must understand that our sexual desire is good. Our sexual desire is good. The book of Song of Solomon is not just a celebration of sex. In fact, there is very little in this book describing the actual act of intercourse. What this book is celebrating is sexual desire. The the primary characters in this book are a man and a woman who, in these love songs, are expressing and experiencing to each other, they're they're experiencing, they're expressing to each other their, their sexual desire. So, for instance, the book begins with these words from the woman, chapter one, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. It's verses two to four. I mean, do you hear the desire being expressed? She wants him to kiss her. She wants to smell his fragrance. She wants him to take her away into his chambers. She she is expressing her desire to make love to him. She wants him. She desires him sexually. And what's so fascinating is that this was written in a culture where women were often viewed and treated like property. And yet here is this love song that begins, it begins with a woman freely expressing her sexual desire. Bible's filled with all sorts of surprises, isn't it? And here's one of them. Okay, now the man in these love songs also expresses sexual desire for this woman. For instance, in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Verse 9, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. See, he too is expressing sexual desire for her. He wants her to come away with him and to make love to, to and, and, and to make love to, to, with her. He, sexual desire is present in both the woman and the man, and it is viewed as a good thing. It is not something to be ashamed of, but rather is to be embraced. Now, what is crucial for us to understand is the context of this desire. The language here, and throughout this book, the language here is not describing two people on the prowl in some bar somewhere, you know, just looking to get their sexual needs met. No, throughout this book, we see two people who are totally focused on each other, who love each other. He calls her darling. He does multiple times in this book, which is a term of endearment, like like sweetheart. He also refers to her as his bride, And she calls him my love. I mean, throughout this book, we we will see this absolute, exclusive, loving focus on each other. That is the context in which sexual desire has its ultimate expression through sexual intercourse. Sex was made for marriage. It was made for this amazing relationship in which a man and a woman commit themselves to love each other for life, exclusively love each other for life. I mean, sex is is, is about way more than sex. 
Sex is about way more than sex. Sex is an expressing of something deep in our soul, a longing for a real, loving connection. In Genesis chapter 2, we see a vivid picture of this ultimate expression of sexual desire. God creates Adam and Eve, and, and excuse me, he creates Eve, and he brings her. He's already created Adam, and so he brings Eve to Adam, and, and Adam is like, whoa, you know, this is awesome. And then listen to what happened that, happens next, Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. This is so critical here, so foundational. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Wow. I mean, this is incredible. God unites them in this exclusive love relationship, and they become one flesh. They experience this profound union that is way more than just sexual intercourse. They are one. And notice this last sentence here. They were both naked, and they felt no shame. No shame, no hiding, no walls, complete vulnerability. The only context in which you can safely be that vulnerable is a context in which you know this person loves you no matter what and is committed to you no matter what. See, that's God's vision. That's God's plan for our sexuality. Oneness to be connected to someone in this incredible love relationship. Sex is not the main goal. It is not the main goal. Sex is an expression of an authentic, absolute love. it's, It's the frosting on the cake. But our society wants to make it the meal. And we all know what happens when we only eat frosting. And it doesn't satisfy. Sometimes it makes us sick, right? God wants us to know that our sexual desire is, is, is a really good thing. It's a really good thing because it reflects a longing for oneness. It reflects a longing for this experience of absolute love. Second thing to understand about our sexual desire, not only is, is it good, second thing to understand about our sexual desire is that our sexual desire is broken. Our sexual desire is broken. We just saw how in Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, right? They're experiencing this amazing, beautiful, God-given sexual connection. They're enjoying each other. They're loving each other. There's no hiding. There's no walls, no shame. But in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God. They choose to disobey him. And suddenly, another dynamic entered the picture. And the damage was everywhere. I mean, the damage was everywhere, including their and our experience of sexual desire. That got impacted as well. What was this one dynamic that suddenly entered the picture? Self. Self Self-focus. Self-centeredness. I mean, I think Genesis 3, verse 7, is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. It's one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible as it describes the first moment after they sinned. First moment. Then the eyes of both of them were opened 
and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They realized they were naked. Suddenly, they were no longer other-centered, right? They, they were now self-focused. They felt ashamed. They felt fearful. They, they made coverings for themselves. This is so sad. I mean, they still longed for oneness, but their ability to experience that became tainted by, by self-centeredness. And this is, this is exactly our problem as well. This is our problem as well. Our sexuality, our sexuality, though a good thing that is given to us by God, has been tainted by sin. It has been tainted by this self-focus. And so, so what happens is we end up using sex for self-fulfillment. We use sex to feel better about ourselves. We use sex to escape from the boredom of life. I mean, one of the indicators of this today is, is how our sexual desires are becoming increasingly disconnected from relationship. I mean, think about that. When you look around, what's happening in us and, and around us, how our sexual desires are increasingly being disconnected from relationship. I mean, the rapid expansion of things like porn, cyber sex, phone sex, hooking up with strangers and one-night stands. I mean, this, this is just, it's just evidence of where this self-focus leads. Sex for the sake of self-gratification, not as an expression of committed love. I mean, this, this shift, it, it is not a minor thing. It is huge the shift from other focus to self-focus. It is huge because what happens is it rips sexual desire from its original context, that of moving us toward this loving connection, this experience of being other-centered. It rips us from that, rips sexual desire from that, and it simply becomes a means for self-gratification. And the problem is sex was never intended for that purpose. It was never designed for that purpose. So when we try to make sex about self-gratification, it doesn't satisfy. I remember hearing a, a single person describe how when he had sex with someone, at the moment he achieved orgasm, he felt depressed. At that moment, he just felt empty. It didn't satisfy his soul, his soul hunger. He, he was using something meant as an expression of otherness, as an expression of selfless love, and he, he was using that to try and fill a void in his heart. And it, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Th this is why, this is one ex reason why self or excuse me, sexual eroticism in the media and, and through pornography, it, it's one of the reasons that is progressive and addictive. It's the reason. Because when you, when you, what, what turned you on yesterday needs to be a bit more extreme to work today. You have to go a little farther to get turned on the same you, you did yesterday. It, it's this dangerous progression that is having a destructive impact on singles and marrieds. See, the, the reality is sex makes a lousy God. It's a wonderful expression of love, but it makes a lousy God. It promises ultimate fulfillment, but it doesn't deliver. It doesn't deliver. And because sex is so powerful, 
the way God designed it, because it is so deeply rooted in us, often our sexual experiences stay with us. Our exposure to pornography as a child or as a teenager stays with us. We can still remember those images. We can still remember sexual partners and experiences. Our sexual experiences matter. They matter. They impact us. They shape us. And this explains why so often our sexual desires are are associated with shame and guilt, with a feeling of, of being dirty. Our entire sexuality has been tainted by sin. Even though God has given sexual desire to us as a good thing, even though that's, that's the case, it has been damaged by sin. And, and, and the, more, the more we experience of sexuality outside of God's loving purposes, the greater the impact of that damage. And this is, this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What is he talking about there? What he's talking about is that sexual sin is unique in its impact upon us. I mean, we steal something, yeah, that's, that's a sin, and it happens outside our body, and there are consequences and all that. But when we sin sexually, it impacts us in here at a soul level. Because again, we're taking something designed to be an expression of absolute love at this kind of level, and we're misusing it. We're misusing it for a self-centered purpose. And that, when we do that, it stays with us. Now, I know some some of us are probably thinking, yeah, but that doesn't describe me. Because what I have with my girlfriend, or what what my boyfriend and I have, it's real love. We, We love each other. We're going to get married someday. Why can't we enjoy the blessing of sex as an expression of love in our relationship? Even if we don't technically have the piece of paper saying we're married. Here's one of the difficulties with that perspective. Because sex is such a powerful experience, it often overshadows reality in a relationship. It just does. In other words, what I mean is sex has a tendency to blind us to reality. It makes us feel in love. But when that initial excitement wears off some months into or a year into the relationship or whatever, people discover there's no real relationship under the surface. Rather than being an expression of love, your sexual involvement may very well be keeping you from discovering what real love looks like. It may be keeping you from discovering what real love looks like. See, if we define love the way the Bible does, as being other person focused, it makes perfect sense to wait to have sex until you're married so that you are protecting the heart of the person you claim to love. You're waiting because you're protecting their heart. Your love is other person focused. Okay, back to this point here. Our sexual desires, although God-given and good, they've been tainted by sin. They're broken. And that brokenness means we often use sex to fill some emptiness inside. And we end up missing out on God's ultimate purpose for our sexuality as a single person and as married, as, as, as married people. 
Instead of, instead of it, our sexual desire um, moving us toward deeper, healthy, loving connections, our broken desires move us toward unhealthy relationships, or they move us toward superficial, disconnected relationships, toward activities that have an increased self-focus, like pornography and erotic fiction and cybersex. I, I guess a, a better way to say this, here, here's maybe a better way to say this, our sexual brokenness tends to move us away from real love and healing rather than towards it. Our sexual brokenness tends to move us away from real love and healing rather than towards it. Okay, so what do we do with this brokenness? What do we do with these sexual desires that are so deeply a part of us and yet they're also tainted by sin and they often get misused? Well, that leads to a third truth that I want us to explore and that is that our sexual desires can be redeemed. Our sexual desires can be redeemed. The answer to our sexual brokenness is not to repress our desires or to embrace the idea that sexual desire is bad or wrong and dirty. No, 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 no. The answer to our brokenness is to see our sexuality in the context of a much larger story. Remember, the story of our sexuality began in the garden, right? It began in a garden, the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve fully enjoyed their sexuality with one another in the Garden of Eden. But when sin entered the picture, they were banished from the garden. They were kicked out of the garden, banished from the garden. And our world has been a picture of what happens when something so powerful as sex gets distorted by self and, and by sin. Okay, now here's, what, here's what's so cool. Do you have any idea where much of the poetry in the Song of Solomon takes place. In a garden. In a garden. Look at Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 16. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden, that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and take its choicest fruits. See, the garden represents the beauty and the passion of sexuality within the context of a loving marriage. Song of Solomon gives us this picture of redeemed sexuality. It's as if God is saying to us, hey, hey, I know, I know what sin has done to your sexuality, but I also want you to know that there is a way back to the oneness and the joy experienced in the garden. That The Song of Solomon gives us a picture of that pathway. For those of us who are married, the Song of Solomon gives us a vision of how powerful and passionate our sexual desire can be when it is truly focused on our spouse. For those who are not married and wanting to be, the Song of Solomon gives us this beautiful picture of something that is worth waiting for. An exclusive, committed love relationship in which sexuality can be fully expressed as it was designed to be expressed. It is worth waiting for that. In fact, there is a powerful verse that's repeated three different times in this, in this book, Song of Solomon. And it's specifically directed towards single people who are, who are observing this love relationship with this man and, and woman between this husband and wife. And they're observing this. They're single people looking at this. And look at this. Look at Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 7. Here's one time. It's used two other times as well. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, 
not to awaken love until the time is right. Notice there is a proper time for sexual intercourse. That proper time for this amazing expression of love is marriage. We've already talked about why God set it up that way. It's for our good. It's so that sex can be a true expression of committed love. But the other thing to note in this verse to singles is the emphasis on not stirring up, not awakening these desires before that time. See, sexual desire, desire is something we are to steward it's something we are to steward. It, it, it's so very special that God wants us to be careful with it, to avoid contexts where we know we will be vulnerable to sexual temptation. I mean, we all know how sexual temptation works. We all know it. It's, you know, it's like the proverbial snowball at the top of the hill, right? It's, it's much easier to stop near the top rather than after it's gained momentum and, and, you know, as it rolls down the hill. Sexual desire is just like that. If we don't guard it and steward it, It can take control in a moment, and we will do something in that moment. In a few seconds, we can do something that we will regret the rest of our lives. We will later regret. So the exhortation to singles from the Song of Solomon is that it's worth the wait. It is worth the wait. That's the vision. That's the vision that the Song of Solomon gives us, again, from a garden. It's a vision of what could be. But that raises a very important question. What do we do with our reality right now? I mean, what do we do with our sexual brokenness? We are all broken. We are all sexually broken in some way. So what do we do with that? What do we do if we've already blown it with our boyfriend, girlfriend? What do we do if we've already blown it multiple times? What do we do if we feel like we're stuck in a cycle of lust and, 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 or, or porn? What do we do if our sexual desires are so closely tied to shame and guilt and fear or to past experiences of abuse? I mean, we can, we can hear a message like this and we can, we can see a vision of what could be, but how do we get there? How do we get there in the midst of our own longings, in the midst of our own brokenness? Well, there's no quick fix, but there is a pathway, and we discover that pathway by looking at another garden in the Bible. In this garden, our Savior, Jesus, experienced anguish beyond belief. He knew that obedience to the Father was going to require an amazing demonstration of selfless love. It was going to require a cross. And as he wrestled with this decision, he prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, he he surrendered his will to the Father's will, all because because of love, love for his Father, love for us. He said yes to the cross Because of this amazing love, this willingness to be broken for us, Jesus offers us some incredibly powerful realities in our sexual brokenness. First of all, he offers us complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. No matter what we have done sexually, no matter how badly we have blown it, he offers us his absolute and total forgiveness. When we confess our sins, when we own them and acknowledge them, he removes our sins completely. 
They no longer define us. We no longer have to carry that guilt and that shame. Let the blood of Jesus define you, not your sexual past. Let the blood of Jesus define you. He can give you and me, he can give all of us a fresh start today. The second thing Jesus offers us because of his experience in the garden and on the cross is his loving presence. You see, so often our sexual brokenness is rooted in a desire to be loved just for who we are. That's what it's rooted in a lot of times. Whether it's porn or sexual, whatever, it's often rooted in this this desire to be affirmed and loved for who we are. And so when we turn to sex to find that, it doesn't deliver. I mean, and the reality is, even in our most healthy relationships, the reality is no human being can perfectly satisfy our longing for unconditional love. No marriage, you're not going to find any marriage. It doesn't matter how great the marriage is, no human being can ultimately satisfy that. But Jesus can. In the midst of our sexual struggles, he offers us himself. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it says. That's what it means including no sexual sin. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That perfect love can begin to heal our broken hearts. It can begin to drive out our fear. You see, the more rooted we are in the love of Jesus, the more sexually healthy we're going to be. The more rooted we are in the love of Jesus, the more sexually healthy we're going to be. His love is that powerful. There's one more thing Jesus offers us through his experience on the cross, and that is something greater to live for. Something greater to live for. The world, the world constantly tells us that self is all that matters, especially as it relates to sexuality. Get all you can while you can. If you're not getting sex, you're missing out. Jesus says to us, you want to find real life? Lose your life for my sake. Lay down your desires and take up mine. For some of us, maybe for many of us, we're not in the place we want to be sexually. Single or married, for some of it, you know, we're not in the place we want to be sexually. There are unmet longings. It's hard and at times lonely, maybe frustrating, confusing. And while, while it might be tempting to just focus on yourself in this season, Jesus offers you something greater to live for. Surrender your desires. Surrender your longings, your life to him. Join with Jesus in his prayer in the garden. Not my will but yours. When we do that, we will discover what Jesus discovered, that there is joy on the other side of difficult obedience. There is joy on the other side of difficult obedience. Our sexual desire is good. It's also broken, but it can be redeemed. As we bring to Jesus this desire, he can help us move toward a healthy and loving experience, healthy and life-giving experience of our sexuality. Let's pray together.
Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now to do what you want to do in our hearts. You know each one of our hearts. You know our situation, those who are single, those who are married. You, you know our sexuality. And you want to enter into those places and, and redeem the brokenness there. So we ask you to do that. I want to encourage us, first of all, just in the quiet of your heart, just to think about this first truth that because of the cross, Jesus offers us complete forgiveness. Are there some sins that maybe you just need to confess, you just need to own them? You've tried to stuff them in a closet somewhere and in your own heart, just kind of stuff them, repress them, just try to forget they ever happened. And have you ever just admitted it to Jesus? This happened? I did this? Just confess it to him? I want to encourage you to do that. And there may be some of you here, you've confessed it hundreds of times. You know what? It, it's time to leave it at the cross because he really does forgive you. First time, he forgives you. Leave it there. He already has. Leave it. He has a purpose for you, a new start for you. Your past does not define you. So Lord, I want to just pray for us to experience complete forgiveness. Not partial, complete forgiveness that we would walk in the amazing truth of a new start. Every day you give us a new start. Secondly, he offers us his loving presence. And Lord, I just want to pray there are some folks here and their, their, their sexual struggle is rooted in this longing for love. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, we pray you would come and pour out the love of the Father as, as the word says that you do. I pray you to bring healing to places of brokenness and pain. Places where we have kept a, shut the door and said, nope, Jesus, you're not getting in here. I'm too ashamed of what's in here. You know, it's, folks, some, some of you here, you just need to open the door and let Jesus in to that experience. Let him into those places of shame and pain and experience his love in those places. So we pray for that, Lord. We pray for healing in those places to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring healing. And I want to pray as well, Lord, for any and all of us here who just need to be reminded there's something greater to live for than sex. And some of us have bought the lie that, man, if we're not sexually active or we're not getting it, it you know, we're, we're missing out and on what real life is about. Lord, I pray you would help us in a sense, share in the experience in the garden where you said, not my will, but yours, Father. And we, we want to share in that. I pray for e each person here that we would bring to you our unmet longings, our frustrations and our marriage or, and, and our confusion, our, our um, uh, even a single, some of our frustration, our desires. We just want to bring that to you. These longings, places that our expectations are not being met and our desires are not being met. Lord, we just want to bring that to you and acknowledge it's not about us, ultimately. We lay down our desires before you. 
And we say yes to you and your will, that you would teach us, even in the midst of the frustration and the struggles, teach us what real love looks like. Thank you for giving us a purpose greater than self to lay down our lives for others. And so I pray for that, for each one of us here, whatever that looks like in our marriage, in our singleness, whatever it looks like, that we would realize you have given us a much greater purpose to live for than sex. Even though it's a good thing, it's a, it, we've already talked about that, but Lord, you, you've given us a, a greater purpose and that's to lay our lives down for you because you laid down your life for us. So thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for being, thank you for your obedience when it was hard to do so. And we know that you experience joy ultimately because of your hard obedience. And Lord, we pray just for that reminder in, in the midst of our challenges in obedience that we would hang on to the joy that is promised. Thank you for the Savior you are. We love you. We praise you. We celebrate your presence today. We celebrate your love and your presence today as we offer ourselves to you in worship. So why don't we stand um, and offer ourselves to Jesus in worship. Go ahead and, and stand. If at some point you want to sit down, that's fine. But Jesus, we set our hearts on you. We offer ourselves to you. We love you. Set us free to worship you, to respond to this message in, in, in praise and worship.